in our own lives, we have many, many layers of discourse about sexuality, mm -hmm. which may start with our actual uh, experience, perhaps incohate, of our own desires, activities in which we engage, some of which we may try to pretend didn't happen to ourselves. We we go, you know, there's this endless complicated way up through what we say to people, we are our lovers, to what we say to our family members, all the way up to what's represented in the movies. Many, many layers up. From ancient Greece, we have only the movies. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ivory tower boiler room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the ivory tower boiler room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And... The GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and, at times, scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone.
Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to be back with you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited. This is a fall season special with the Gay and Lesbian Review because I have one of their contributing writers. But even before I hit record, we were already chatting away about how I use his work in my dissertation. So before all that, though, I want to reveal the mystery behind who this is if you're not actually seeing the video version. That's a little plug for all of you to join at $5 a month on Patreon. But regardless, if you're listening on the audio, I appreciate all the listeners, and I'm sure he does as well. So first, I want to introduce you to another Dr. Andrew, Dr. Andrew Lear, who actually founded Oscar Wilde Tours, and I am reading a really beautiful biography on oscarwildtours.com. A little plug for you, Andrew, there. Uh, he holds a BA from Harvard and a PhD from UCLA. He's published widely on male, male love and ancient Greek art. We're definitely going to get into that, as well as a number of scholarly articles in the area. That was a little of our pre-show conversation. He's considered one of the foremost experts on same-sex love in the ancient world, but also in gay history, specifically in the late 19th century um, field of England, Renaissance Italy, medieval Japan. And he explores all of that with Oscar Wilde tours. I've attended a lot of his Zoom tours, which have been wonderful. I know he also has in-person tours, which I want to talk to him about because I'm manifesting going on one of them in the future, maybe next year, we'll see what happens. He has taught at Harvard, Columbia, NYU. He won the Harvard Certificate for Excellence in Teaching four times. He's taught in classics, history, art history, gender studies, Italian and French language classes, sexuality in the ancient world. And I think without further ado, everyone now has been properly introduced to you, Dr. Lear, Andrew. Uh, so welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you, Andrew, for that glorious intro. Well, I have to do your bio justice. So I think even before we get into everything that's so exciting with Oscar Wilde Tours and how you founded this as what I really see as a beautiful model of public humanities, and especially you. like you being here, I've looked at what you've done and modeled myself after you and so many others with opening up more public discussions about especially sexuality and you know LGBTQ history, literature, art. Uh, so before all of that though, I'm just curious, when you look back at your career, you look back at why you went into, say, academia, right? Why you went into going to pursue a PhD. Was there always something in the back of your mind thinking, I want to really open up this field of sexuality and bring it to the public? No, I always wanted to not do a PhD very badly. Um, but, uh, you know, the waves slowly bore me towards the university. I tried and tried. I taught at the University in Italy as a lecturer in English for many years, which only required an MA. Um, and, um, but I was finding my work in Italy was fun, living in Rome, you can imagine, but also for those who actually live in Rome, it's also like a pain in the butt, <laughs> very kind of depressing. And um, finally, they brought me in. I spoke to a, a very, very famous Italian scholar named Dante della Terza, 
uh, much honor to Dante, who's now sadly no longer with us. And uh, Dante just said to me, uh, I will translate things. He said, Andrew, what would it cost you? A little PhD. <laughs> and thus a decade of my life went into that pocket. But, uh, you know, it was a good idea. Well, what were you studying? Oh, sorry, Andrew. No, when no, you were at Harvard, what was your uh, degree in? When I was an undergrad, I did English rather than um, classics, although I was always kind of on the border between the two. Um, was uh, yeah. actually, I don't know if you know who Robert Fitzgerald is, mm -hmm. a famous translator. Of the Oxford. So mm -hmm. I was having dinner with mm -hmm. Professor Fitzgerald, and he said to me in his very emphysema-influenced way, he said, <clears throat> a poet <clears throat> should major in English. And so, wait, this is the Robert Fitzgerald who infamously translated Homer's Iliad, well, right? Not the and, Iliad no? is not his best. His best translations are the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Okay. And normally, back before all the newer translations, we always used to teach from Lattimore's Iliad and Fitzgerald's Odyssey. And then definitely Fitzgerald's Aeneid. Although now there's a great one by David Ferry, another wonderful older Harvard guy who's an I don't know. David might be alive, but if he's alive, he's not in good shape. Well, and the new Odyssey that was really blew the roof off with the actual first female translator. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Which I can't is, remember. I, can't I know, remember. I'll I find her, her name, but no, no, was, I met her, but yeah. It was incredible just to have this now in existence. But yeah, sorry. You were saying about your PhD at UCLA. How you so, ended up there. Oh, how did I end up there? Oh, the long, that would take forever. Um, I started, I did, uh, it was hard because I had, I would been out of school for a while and hadn't ever majored in classics. It wasn't very easy for me to do a PhD in classics, but the uh, department at the University of Virginia, which is a quite distinguished classics department, took me and I started my PhD there, but Charlottesville was just not the place for me. <laughs> it's very charming and all, but I'm not a small, I'm not a small town boy. Uh, although I can do what I do in a small town, I don't really like to. So then I went on thinking about where I should go. And I think I actually went to California because one of my advisors was from Berkeley. And he kind of brought in a lot of different California people into my life. And then I really had ended up being a choice between several departments in California. And the UCLA the classics department happens to be particularly good and particularly good in Greek. Um, and yeah, it was a great department. So, yeah. Oh, there. Emily Wilson did the new Emily Wilson, exactly. exactly. Um, so, well, I know that I think now you're joining me from New York City. Or no? No, no Where you, are can you, see the, you can see all the leafiness around me. Come well, on. I was going to say, if you are in New York City, yeah. I need to know where all these trees That's are. That's right. Outside. Is this Sutton Place or something? No. Oh, no. I thought maybe you were in like a brownstone. Right. No, no I am not. Uh, during COVID, I floated around quite a bit uh, because I didn't really need to be in New York. And um, eventually I just decided I needed to buy a place somewhere. So I bought a condo in Providence. Oh, okay. Okay. Very nice. Yeah, yeah you're very you. close to um, yeah. Boston and well, P-Town. My, my family's from Boston and and, oh, and, okay. and I have a lot of P-Town, as you mentioned, connections. But I wanted to be a little closer to New York. Mm -hmm. So Providence, you know. It works. Like, yeah. It's like Boston outer suburbs towards New York. Exactly. I mean, I'm on Long Island and oh. I'm at on Fire Island a lot in the summer. Yeah. Um, 
just because it's only 30 minutes away from me. So oh, nice. Yeah. So I finished at Stony Brook and live in Port Jefferson. Oh, oh okay. Uh, beautiful quite... area. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it's like yeah. the mix of small, it's not small town, but it's not suburban. It's more right. what I call historic, a historic beach town, a porting town. So it's interesting yeah, yeah, in Port that. Jefferson regard. Is cute. Yeah. yeah so um, but I'm with you in the needing that culture around. It's something that you went to UCLA and I find that really interesting. Like how was it being in the Los Angeles scene, especially with the work you do compared to say New York City? Yeah, well, I mean, being an intellectual or kind of traditional intellectual in LA makes you very much an island in LA culture. So funny little bits and pieces, but it's a very big city. And so it has a number of such islands which are kind of connected. So I ended up teaching, it's the one place that is not listed, I guess, on my um, website. My main job was actually at Pomona College. Oh. So I taught in LA. I, I, But you know, there's little Pomona group, there's UCLA, there's USC, there's the Getty, um, you know, between them, it's actually a fairly substantial world of ancient studies. And then we're not that far from uh, San Francisco, of course, with Stanford and Berkeley, which are both uh, really big hitters in the classical world. So, um, and there are actually some people also good people at, at US, UCSB, Santa Cruz, California has a lot of classics. Yes, yes. Even I know San Diego, especially with queer awesome. studies, California is yes. oh, uh, well, at the top when it comes to programs and departments. Um, yeah, yeah. Something that the Northeast, well, let's talk about it, Andrew. I think we have <laughs> to since you're here. How are you weighing in right now with where classics, where are classics departments is my first question. Well, not doing so well, of course. Um a little better than than some other parts of the humanities, partly because classics already shrank. Mm -hmm. It's not shrinking anymore. Um, but uh, as far as going doing things like sexuality and gender studies, classics is way behind the curve. It's a conservative field. Um, as I always say, you need a certain uh, intellectual caution to be able to deal with the extremely fragmentary evidence of the ancient world. And unfortunately, this brings in cautious people. And cautious mm. people, you know, it's nice that they don't jump on every trend, right? Because then some trend, like Lacanian stuff, like uh, barely hit classics, and it was already gone before before we got before we even noticed. But um, on other things, classics is very slow. It was, um, you know, it astonishes people in other parts of the humanities when I tell them about the difficulties I had in getting one, anyone in classics to accept the idea of doing uh, studies of male-male sexuality in the ancient world. But I'll just give you one quote, a very important classicist and also a great friend of mine and a big supporter of mine, probably trying to help me in life, asked me why I was writing a second book about such an unimportant topic. Mm. Oh, wow. that'll, that'll just give you an idea of what the field is like. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? 
Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Yeah. Well, do you feel that there are, is there younger scholars who are really like, I'm always so just desirous of learning about intergenerational mentorship. And I think that maybe it's just, especially with the work I'm doing, seeing the way that academia recently on an episode that has just come out with one of my mentors from Kane University, that's where I got my undergrad, um, Dr. John Gruzer, who's a post scholar, he actually calls it academia and freefall. And I thought that that was a really great metaphor to describe this. He's talking about like the English field, but I think we could apply it to really almost all fields, um, like even extending outside humanities. There's a lot of concerns and you know, you when I was an undergrad, yeah, I think English was the largest major at Harvard. Mm. And, and history was humongous. And back then, we did not regard history as in the humanities. History was in the social sciences. And now they say there's nobody majoring in the humanities, and they include history. Which No, it's like, true. That's, it's that's why history is in the social science building at Stony Ooh. Brook still. Oh, yeah. No, it's that's a good never point. regarded as the humanities. And now... Yeah, I mean, there are like 12 history majors and seven English majors. And I mean, seriously, um, I remember asking the senior tutor in the English department when I was an undergrad, I said something about, well, you know, I could just major. Uh, we had a more intensive major and a less intensive major. And um, I was trying to do a joint major in English and classics, and they weren't allowing it uh, for some reason. And so I said, well, you know, I could just do the less intensive major and um, then do what I want in classics. And what he said was, Oh, yeah. He said, those are God's children, too. Like, the less intensive majors, who we, there were like hundreds of them. Interesting. Who, who even knew who they were. 
Well, so how is UCLA's classics PhD? Like, is it still like, do you keep in touch with those in the, like those at the UCLA department? I do. I don't know too much about what's going on in the department. My own fault. Uh, It's a wonderful department and I really like a number of the people in it and I, and I'm certainly in touch with them still, uh, but I'm not maybe very up to date about what's going on. It's a pretty prosperous department though. It's done pretty well. Um, on the whole. And yeah, my, both of my PhD advisors are still there. So, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, And, and wonderful people both. Well, but like you said, classics was already a, like, even when you went for your PhD, which you don't have to, unless you want to tell me the year. Um, oh, oh yeah. 2004. Okay. Okay. Not that so long yeah, not that late. long ago. And how was it, you know, going for your PhD with already a lot of different humanities experience. Like where where were you coming? How are you coming to your PhD is probably the better question. Yeah, that's an interesting question. First of all, it did not make it easier to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made people suspicious. Uh, in fact, I applied for two years. The first year I applied, I got into a couple of places, but nowhere I particularly wanted to go. And then I can't remember who looked over my application and said, oh, yeah, take all this stuff out, like Robert Fitzgerald, just like remove all that. Um, And later on, I once talked to a very prominent and wonderful professor from UCLA, great guy who runs a huge international project about making 3D online versions of Rome now. He's not at UCLA anymore. Great person, though. But um, he said he heard something about me and he said, why did I not know all this? about you. I mean, you speak Italian, you speak French, you speak German. This is all great stuff. I was on the admissions committee, Andrew. I don't know any of this. And I said, yeah, that's right, Bernie, because uh, when I put all that stuff in my application, they didn't let me in. So I removed it all before I applied again. And then I just said, you know, put in a letter from someone at Harvard who said his Latin is very strong. His Greek is extremely good. Um, very firm grasp of ancient Greek grammar. <laughs> I said, okay, let him in. So yeah, it's it it is a that's classics is a very you know active field. Self so yeah, and there's self selecting. I'm a like I know some who are um, currently like those I know who are in classics who are PhD students or who have just um, defended their dissertation. It is just interesting to see they all really know each other, but there is such a network that doesn't always exist in, say, history, English, just because of the numbers. And I think, too, this is something that no, and I so admire what you do with Oscar Wilde Tours, because something that I've always advocated for at Stony Brook was we really need to know where our alumni in PH in the PhD program, what types of professions they went into since the majority are not at right. a college. Yes. But that list doesn't exist. Yeah, in it, classics it does. There's a there's a nonprofit institution called Paidea. And Paidea is all about uh classicists outside of academia. Um and I've oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's a well, it's a wonderful, it's a great organization, all in all. Yes. Yeah. I think and I think we really need that type of not just a like not university specific like you're saying about Padea is that what it's called you just said uh so right this isn't just about Stony Brook it's about because 
as we already know, universities, um, department staff are already overworked. So then to try to give another task to them isn't fair. That's where we need something that's more structural of, okay, let's track those who finish their dissertation like in a year, what happened? Like, where are they? What are they working on? Oh. What projects? Well, in every field, there's a professional association which could be doing that. Well, the MLA technically. Right, the MLA. Sorry, I forget. Because be. we're not in the MLA. Yeah, Plastics the MLA. Is its own is, little world. Yes, yes. Is it? The MLA is the literature's big honcho. Right. Um, but no, the MLA does. You have to, though, create your own profile. So that's the thing is you have to self-select into okay, the yeah. MLA yeah. and become a member for them to start to follow what work you're doing. But again, I know some who they finished their PhD and then they basically, you know, using an ancient Greek myth metaphor, they, the court of life, <laughs> like they wanted nothing to do sure. because of their experience. And, you know, it saddens me, but it's also that reality of, um, well, what I, I'm so interested in, Andrew, is how do you find all your different talents working together? Like, how hard is it to manage, say, your touring business with academia, with your teaching? <laughs> how do you get all of these elements and tentacles working in tandem? That That's a very difficult question because I'm, in fact, going insane. <laughs> I, I think I have like, I can never remember, do I have six or seven businesses that I run at the moment? Um, and I, I actually sometimes try to just remember what they all are and whether there's something I need to do about each one. And sometimes I can't remember one. I think, damn, what was the thing I'm forgetting? Um, and then I can't sleep because I like I can't remember an entire major project. But um, yeah, I, I do think, so I'm working at the moment on a bunch of movie and TV projects. And I think in some ways those bring a lot of the things together uh, for me. And um, I hope I hope they work out. Uh, the Of course, the strikes are not helping. But, um, you know, I mean, the strikes are very justified, <laughs> extremely justified, complete justified. But um, nonetheless, they are kind of in my way. Um, but some of those, um, some of those things, I'm trying to do a, um, among other things, an LGBTQ uh, history TV series. Oh. Uh, which I actually had the BBC green light at one point, but it still hasn't happened. Uh, so we've kind of reconfigured it and we're trying to get some some different people involved. But we have some wonderful patrons, I would say. So Jane Lynch oh, wonderful. is being helpful. And, um, Zachary Quinto, in some ways, wonderful guy. Oh, wow. Will this be... Similar to what Eric Cervini did with Discovery, the Discovery Channel. <laughs> you really don't want to hear what I think. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is, it's your thoughts. This is, does not reflect the yes, author. Yes, but mine Andrew will be Rendell. for adults. <laughs> okay. That's, that's all. That's all I have to say. So you're uh, just saying there's a different audience that you're targeting. A bit, yeah. Yeah, I really felt like that was done for, like, almost for children. Yeah. And, well... Um, it was definitely teaching. Well, I think that's where, as an academic, right? Eric has a PhD in history. Yeah. Um, I think gender no. studies. Think Is it gender, gender studies? I think so. Okay. I could be wrong. Uh, no. It, well, I'll find. As in real time, I always figure it out. Don't worry. But 
from what I just like Eric and I have messaged each other, I think mm, I know what I've Eric, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think what I so appreciate is he's leading well, I don't want to say leading, but he's part of this movement of the social media exposure and especially Absolutely. bringing academia to the broad public, but specifically those who are LGBTQ from like, say, Gen X, Gen Z um, and the millennials, of course, and teaching them history that they probably have never been taught. Right. And it seems like you're already assuming your audience has at least they can dig deeper into more nuance. Is that the difference? I'm not quite sure. Maybe. Um, yeah. No, I'm not quite sure. There is, by the way, also, I should give a plug to a different podcast. There's another person, roughly Eric's age, um, doing a podcast on uh, LGBTQ history called Historic Homos or Historical Homos. I can't remember. Um, there's a guy called... Um, Sebastian or Bash Hendra, uh, who's kind of interesting. You might want to take a look. Okay. Yeah. And I um have also had on the show Bad Gaze. Sure. Um, also. Yeah. Also. Ben Miller. Um, I'm about to have Eric Marcus on soon, everyone. Oh, wonderful. From Making Gay History. Yes. So no, um, that's the thing, is I'm connected story. to all the public scholars in LGBTQ studies. Um, so right. You'd, I don't think you said anything that is in a negative light. You're no, just no. airing that these are different different platforms, producing production companies, right? Sometimes you as the artist don't have a choice. No, of course. Like what Discovery oh, says, course. they yeah, lead yeah, your yeah. they lead the guard and the direction. Totally. They yeah, but, do. Um, yes, I'm uh, hand, so, handing things off to some of a couple of them right now. We'll just have to see how that goes, but yeah, well, I'm crossing fingers. Oh, yes. Eric received a PhD in history in 2019 at Cambridge and researched gender and sexuality in ancient society. Oh, okay. Um, but just so if Eric's listening, I have great, the right record. It's a, it's a great book. Oh, yeah. The Deviant's War. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so your work, though, Andrew, on pederasty pederastia on ancient Greek sexuality is definitely what I've used in my dissertation. It's what so many, when I mention your name in academia, they automatically will say, oh yes, he wrote about ancient Greek, same sex desire, but specifically Greek vase, nudity and penises, right? Like there's this <laughs> image of what Andrew Lear does <laughs> in academia. But like, how does that Right. How do, say, the erotic Greek vases translate into when you're talking to those on a tour or those on a Zoom tour? Like, do you feel that you're easily able to use the same language? Do you have to really factor in jargon, the audience? I mean, that's a big question. Uh, so, um, I mean, I think the the point, the broadest point about working on ancient Greece might have to do not with the specifics of uh, vases, but more generally on uh, something to do with representation and how represent, you know, how to, to what extent the representations of gender and sexuality things in a genre like art um, 
reflect social customs or differ from social customs. And um, also, I think that work on sexuality in ancient Greece, this is the way it's always been seen, right? Or I shouldn't say always, certainly been seen since Foucault, uh, opens up a lot of questions about the way we define sexuality, rather than um, just being about ancient Greece. Um, it, it is, after all, the nice thing about ancient Greece is that people in the modern West know a fair amount about it, even if you think they don't know much, but they know something about it. Everyone. They've all had Greek myths and they read like the child's Iliad when they were little kids. You know, it's it's really part of our education still. And they're concerned with it. People are really interested. Um, classics departments may not help very much in getting the public more interested or informed. But uh, but. Um, you know, you teach a course like Greek myth or Greek civ, at, in, in, people may not major in classics, but they certainly want to take classes like that. It's a very widespread interest. And so you can talk about ancient Greece. And if you look at a culture which viewed and practiced um, sexual desire and sex too, which of course we don't know as much, um, so differently from our own, it really opens up all kinds of questions about the definitions of sexuality, categories, valuations, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really, now there are many cultures in which sexuality has been dealt with very differently from ours. Um, but ancient Greece is the one that people know a little bit about and care about. So it's a good place to start. Well, and then in the Gay and Lesbian Review, when you have something like secret penises as at the Met as one of your articles. <laughs> uh, definitely, you know how to use tantalizing language, just like what so, I love of a type of shock value, but it's also part of your work. Do you, because I can ask you this question, and it's something that also resonates with the type of writing I do, or even like bringing on guests who talk about gay porn studies, right? I've had Tim Dean on, I've had um, Thomas Wall. And like, my number one question always is what, what do you do with um, explicit, especially explicit queer male nudity? Do you think that you're put through the ringer in a different way than say, if it was about heterosexual, even though, right, heterosexual, is an anachronistic term or something out of time no, with something antiquity, with, yeah. but with, something that the general public would see as heterosexual right. sexuality in antiquity. Like, how have you thought through that process? Like, do you think you face more obstacles because it is same sex related? LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. 
So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would not say that I have experienced a lot of discrimination in my life for being gay. But as an academic... <laughs> Um, yeah, I was working on a topic of which the field of classics is to some extent terrified. Um, it, it's really interesting. There's a whole history to be written um, of the way in which classicists have um, tried to, what is the word, um, tried to limit the damage um, of Greek pederasty. That, so for a long time, of course, people simply uh, translated converting he to she. Right, that went on for centuries and centuries. We don't do that anymore. Um, but uh, there's still just so many ways in which classicists try. Um, what was one that I was thinking about recently? Oh, well, there's probably the best known uh, book about ancient Greek uh, love at the moment is a book called The Greeks and Greek Love by James mm -hmm. Davidson. And mm -hmm. J James um, tries to argue desperately that the younger males in Greek pederastic relations were 18 and above. And he does this by ignoring all the evidence against his point um, and misconstruing evidence and so on and so forth. But it's it's not that unusual. Uh, it's an attempt, what I, you might call it a babblerization of ancient Greek culture, but there are many versions of that. Um, I was just reading a, a scholarly article, not bad in some ways, in which somewhere in there he said something like, you know, we all know that sex with, um, you know, adolescents is wrong. He seemed to be including the ancient Greeks, but no, the ancient Greeks did not know it was wrong. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, they did not think it was. Rather, we think it's wrong, and they didn't think it was wrong. 
Um, and uh, you know, just that, I always feel in moments like that, like saying, well, study some other culture if it makes you so uncomfortable. You know, there are so many worse things about the history of the world, right? And about ancient Greeks. Like when one Greek city conquered another Greek city, they might kill all the males, rape the women and carry away the children, including with boys. They might castrate them and sell them as slaves to the Persians. Um, you know, that's worse mm -hmm. <laughs> on an ethical scale, much worse. Um, they had slaves, mm -hmm. per se. That's really terrible. The ancient Romans had gladiatorial combat, which is really ghastly. Uh, and so on and so forth. But for some reason, people don't try to pretend that gladiatorial combat didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Whereas they do try to pretend that Greek pederasty didn't happen. And I connect this actually to a form of panic that is very profound. Um, I think that we learn rules for gender and sexuality in the cradle. Um, and they are, and we learn them years and years and years before we practice, well, gender not, you practice gender from the moment you're really, you start to move your toes probably, but we don't practice sexuality very much until we reach like, it's like 13 years, you have 13 years of sexuality lessons, rules, you're told the rules over and over again by society, by your parents, reflecting society, so on and so forth. So we're very attached to these sexuality rules of our culture. And um, another culture having different ones, particularly a culture we admire it can be very panic inspiring for people. And something that really strikes me as similar, I, I read some young movie star, I can't quite remember who, had kissed a guy in a movie. And he said, people always ask me if that was really disturbing. And he said, you know, I've also stood next to someone and blown their head off in a movie, which through special effects looked like I was blowing their head off. Nobody asked me if that was disturbing. Mm. So there is this sexuality, yeah. So anyway, yes, it's a big problem. Uh, you know, just cheerfully. The way I do it, um, if I have to think about it, is that I sell it by uh, generally treating things in a fairly lighthearted and humorous way, which works fine. Um, well, and what percent, like, I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you had to put a percentage just for everyone out there, um, how many were actually engaging in ancient Greek pederastia? Like who were considered um, Athenian male citizens, like those who actually had rights as citizens? Could have been 100%. We certainly don't have any idea. Um, we don't have any evidence that anyone didn't. I mean, it was considered a normal part of life that men, adult men, we really mostly hear about the sexuality of adult men. And I know that sounds horrible and patriarchal, and so it is. But it's also because adult men had choices. So mm -hmm. they can be praised or dispraised according to the choices they make. Whereas that's harder to apply to women or young people. Because they're not, boys definitely have choices and they get praised and dispraised as well. But um, it is definitely was considered normative for a man, an adult man, to desire both women and adolescent males. Um, like there are some occasional cases where somebody re represents themselves as particularly enthusiastic about relations with, say, pederastic relations. But, you know, that's that's self-representation. They regarded, among other things, marriage as pretty much behind a wall of silence. So if you were enthusiastic about sex with your wife, God knows you would never have said anything about it. Mm, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, that would have been scandalous.
Well, and also if you were having an adult lifelong relationship with another man, that was also totally. taboo. Right. Totally so when taboo. people in the public say, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you hear it all the time. Sure. Oh, there were gay people in ancient. There were gay people, right? They're gay people. It's no, like, no, no, no. What they what what I tell them is, society, uh, sexuality worries societies because it's a difficult force to contain, mm -hmm. and so societies spend a lot of time making rules, all kinds of rules for sexuality, and rules change constantly. Uh, but nonetheless, enforcement of rules, policing rules is very important. And But every society has different rules. And their rules were just very different from ours. Well, and in my work, like why I used Andrew's work is because Andrew has such an extensive and just you have such a good way of looking at visual illustrations. Mm -hmm. Like with Greek vases, I find you also target the intersection between what I really needed to figure out, which is how a symposium scene is visually represented, right? And for all of you out there, Plato's Symposium is a great text to read if you don't really know what was this idealistic version of the symposium in philosophy, but that this high intellectual act of philosophizing then mixed with pederastic desire or the adult male with the prepubescent boy. Pubescent. Not prepubescent? Oh, pubescent. actually pubescent? Really? Pubescent. See, yeah. I've read different accounts. Of... Well, see, we, all, we have very little evidence. Read my article. Um, we have very little evidence. There is one poem, which is not very good evidence because it's from uh, the Hadrianic period, so already pretty late. But he goes through the ages of boys, specifically, um, and 12 to 17 is what he regards as okay. 18 okay. is not okay, because that's already a man. But the idea of having sex with someone under 12 is literally never mentioned. Yeah, but they were beardless. That is true. In theory. Well, idealistically, right? Uh, so yeah, this is ideally, what I wanted to talk beardless. to you about. Yeah. Is like, I use the literary sources, so if I'm using right. some... Plato's Symposium, right. that is an idealistic version. That is not, it's yes. like what I say, if we read high intellectual theory from nowadays, you would think it would be as if you thought it was an accurate representation. But theory yes, is exactly. never, theory never actually ref reflects everyday life of people. No. Well, what I say about that is that we have, in our own lives, we have many, many layers of discourse about sexuality, mm -hmm. which may start with our actual uh, experience, perhaps incohate, of our own desires, activities in which we engage, some of which we may try to pretend didn't happen to ourselves. We we go, you know, there's this endless complicated way up through what we say to people we are our lovers, to what we say to our family members, all the way up to what's represented in the movies. Many, many layers up. From ancient Greece, we have only the movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we are left strict entirely only with what the rules are or what is regarded as okay. But if you think about, just think about um, the representation in movies, let's leave the same sex realm and say well, the representation in movies of marriage, right? You fall in love with someone when you're 27, that's sort of an appropriate age to get married in America today. And then you stay in love for the rest of your life, both of you. Um, both people are equally in love and obligated to be equally in love and you stay in love for the rest of your life. Now, 
take a million, a zillion marriages, which there are, and see how many of them live, you know, how do they relate to that ideal? Right. Mm -hmm. So this, it's a similar kind, except we just don't have any of the lower level information about ancient Greece. It's, but it's I love like, this Hollywood movie metaphor that yeah, yeah. created, Andrew. Again, this is where trained in English, I've had to explain to those trained in history, my writing is not about reflecting everyday life. My writing is about how authors like Whitman or Wilde were influenced by what they read. And because I've gotten into some debates with those who question my reading of male homoeroticism as being purely interested in things that go against historical record. But I said it didn't, it wasn't against what the author thought, right? There's those exactly. of us who read fiction, we see representations of LGBTQ desire. Like you said, some want to emulate the movies. They want to emulate something that's fictional and then it gets into well, their no, work. No, I think but everyone, like, I think everyone wants to. Mm -hmm. But they do to different. And of course, in Wilde's life, we have, um, I would say we see different levels because when he defends himself at his trial, he defends specifically his relationship with Bosie Douglas on the basis of ancient Greek pederasty. But in fact, most of Wilde's sex life and Bosie's sex life even more consisted of sleeping with boy prostitutes mm -hmm. um, to whom he might've been nice. He does seem to have been, he gave them like silver cigarette cases, but he wasn't, it wasn't Greek pederasty, right? He wasn't, no. there was, well, my, what my students, I should give you this phrase cause you'll like it called tutoring with benefits. <laughs> It wasn't tutoring with benefits. <laughs> I know That's you, an interesting I knew, way to I describe tell you pederastia. Like yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, well, and do you know, because there's that really, if you learn more about Wilde, there's the really scandalous, tantalizing information about how there was actual stains on the bed sheets of like him having anal sex, which or, is- Or Bosey having anal sex. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. So were they together? It was no, but well, maybe, is no, but both or was there been, a was there a boy was there a prostitute? Yeah, no, I don't think but Wilde had anal sex with Bosey, but he I think we may know that. Um, but uh he certainly you know, Bosey certainly might have been having sex with a prostitute in Wilde's Rome, possibly with Wilde watching. Ah, a little voyeuristic activity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why not? Yeah, yeah. They were a little I mean, kinky. Um but right, wasn't that really that was used as evidence though during the trial? Yes, yes, no, from the hotel was, staff. Yes, but I don't think it was accepted legally. Mm. The evidence it was dismissed because you know there could be stains on sheets from many things. Yes, you could, yes. and you could also have you know diarrhea. Right, there's yeah. no right. There's no anyone who's that, eating right now. They're like, yeah, sorry okay, guys, there's no reason that fecal stains need to be for manalitiforce. I think it's so interesting because the love that dare not speak its name, which so many associate with Wild, was actually from Bosie's poem. Yes, I know. And, I just I just yeah. saw a BBC I think piece on um uh on TV where they quoted it as Wild. No, it, it's yeah. again, like I said, it's how the record how a whisper down the lane happens, right? Or, because right. I really love the Greeks and Greek love. Like I actually turned to it for some historical, not the pederastic element, but I turned to James for more just like setting the scene with the Athenian male citizens and giving a little of that record. 
But it, something that I love is you are so frank, Andrew, and I like that you're unfiltered. But also, you're engaging in an intellectual debate. And that's something I feel, though, is, first of all, I don't know, is James gay? I'm assuming yes. he is. Okay. Yes. I don't like to assume, but okay. So do you feel like, though, as a community of scholars, like already being a gay male scholar, um, I can just speak for myself as a gay male scholar, right? Everyone out there, they might say, Andrew, you keep talking about gay men, but I'm like, okay, I can speak for my identity here as a scholar that do you feel we support each other? Because that's something I'm trying to come to terms with is, can you support each other, but also engage in a vigorous debate? It's like, so, okay, I appreciate the book you published, but I also deeply disagree. And that's okay. That's how this sausage gets made. That's how the world turns in academia. I would say that happens to a certain extent. Like, let's leave James aside for a moment. Tom Hubbard, uh, mm -hmm. another publicly famous classic scholar who writes about uh, ancient Greek pederasty. And I disagree about some things very strongly. Um, Tom believes that Greek pederasty was exclusively a, a custom of the upper classes. I have a bunch of evidence that that's not true. Um, we've argued about it a hundred times. Tom is very supportive of my work. I, the encyclopedia article we're talking about was published in a volume edited by Tom. And I directly say it several times that you know, I disagree with Tom. Oh, what is that article for everyone out there, Andrew? That's an article. It's an encyclopedia article in the companion, the Blackwell companion to, I think it's called Companion to Greek and Roman Sexualities, that is called, I think, Ancient Pederasty. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's yeah, it's an article I'm really very happy to have written. Um, and, you know, Tom requested it, cut it a little bit because it was too long for his volume, but... And I certainly have that relationship with a number of people. On the other hand, there's a lot of um, pretty bloody disputes in the, in the field of classics between gay male classicists who like, you know, go through the throat. Um, I'm not actually involved, um, but sometime I could find for you the online uh, disputes between James Davidson, David Halpern and Tom Hubbard oh. um, on the on in the perhaps comment sections of the Bryn Mawr Classical Review. I mean, they're not supporting each other. <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. But like, again, maybe I'm so Pollyanna, but already <laughs> like it's such a small field. Sure. But again, sometimes the most petty arguments are because you have run out of the pieces of the pie. <laughs> like huh? you're already fighting for a small space. Do you think it's that? Or do you think it's just, this is so... It's the passion that's fueling the debate. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. 
I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime in Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to that old gay classic cinema. And now back to the ivory tower boiler room. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of ad hominem arguments. I mean, certainly James's book is full of ad hominem attacks on Dover and Foucault. Um, uh, and um, yeah, there's, there's kind of ad hominem stuff going on on all sides there. Um, sometime also for your amusement, it's in the hist sex. Uh, whatever that is, is it a wiki or something? There's a 17-page single-spaced review of the Greeks and Greek love by Tom Hubbard. Ah. <laughs> you should okay. read it. <laughs> well, I am in favor of all of you out there, James. I've used your work. I use Andrew. I use David Halper in Dover. Sure. I bring you all together. And I quote James. James has made some very good points. He's made some very good points. He was very firmly uh, arguing that people like Dover and Foucault um, emphasize sex too much in their discussion of ancient Greek pederasty, where ancient discourses about it is not about sex. It's much more the tutoring than the benefits. Yeah. Well, and that's and see, clearly I'm what more... was culturally emphasized. Yeah. And, and my, I'm more on Hubbard's, like, I really... Like I've said, what I borrow from you, not borrow, but what you've taught me is about the visual representing, like how do we understand something so artistically visual on a vase to represent something that was a reality? Like, where's that line? Understanding those boundaries. And like from uh, Tom Hubbard, I do agree more on the upper class, but I don't say it with pederastia. I agree more when you're talking about the symposium meeting pederastia. Oh, of course. That's my, like the symposium is an upper class art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably in that article, in the pederastia article, I marshal a bit of evidence against the idea that pederastia was exclusively an upper upper class custom. What I would say very simply is that the middle classes and the lower classes tend to ape the upper classes. Mm -hmm. Um, They may not have been able to participate in pederastia at a Plato level, but that doesn't mean they weren't participating at in it in whatever at whatever in whatever way they were. There's some great little bits. Um yeah. Xenophon warns you in the economicus against hiring a farm bailiff who's too in love with a boy because he'll be too distracted. Well, farm bailiffs are not upper class. And so on and so forth. There are little bits and pieces like that um, that are that seem to me to indicate that obviously we don't have any idea whether. Any of this is, is, you know, really reflects reality. But in an ancient Greek mind, it was not necessarily exclusively an upper class custom. Well, it's kind of that metaphor you did with 
materialism in a way, representing our everyday American society. It would be as if I think historians look to the Met Gala thinking that that was what yes. everyday people <laughs> participated in. But then like you see the middle class then tries to represent the Met Gala totally. with their own parties. And then it just totally. trickles down into, well, I need to buy such and such you uh Gucci, I need to get that bag because it represents what someone had worn in the one percent. Totally. And yeah, and I Kmart, feel like American Kmart designs their clothes with the Met Gala in mind. Exactly. It, every brand yeah. of fashion is looking up to who's Kmart the trendsetter. Yeah. Yes. No, of course. Yes. So, you know, as we're nearing the end, which this has gone by so quickly, Andrew. Um, but I know we'll be in touch and I'll have you back on again when you're well, I need to talk about these in-person tours because it's been just, I'm, I think I'm having dreams about how idyllic they could be. But just to set the scene, like when did this all start where you would actually go in person to Greece, to Italy, like on the ground, you would, you're actually leading groups on yeah. LGBTQ history of these places. Like how did this happen? So it started when my academic, well, we can't really say my academic career fell apart, but I was at NYU and NYU couldn't, was a temporary position. They couldn't renew it. And I really didn't want to go anywhere else. Um, I just said, okay, fine. Listen, NYU is where I want to be. I'm fine here. And I'm not leaving New York <laughs> to go get some other job. And one of my advisors, advisors, of course, spend their lives trying to get you to get an academic job. But one of my advisors said to me, um, you know, Andrew, if it were anyone else, I would say, just keep pushing and you'll get that job at Indiana State. But I don't see you there anyway. And said, you are a professor. You've been a professor. You've done it. <laughs> Go do something else. And so I was just trying to think what to do. And I happen to have a long background in the travel industry. Um, summer jobs because of my French, German and Italian. I'd, I'd like run tours for people for years and years and years and years. And I just thought, well, maybe I could, you know, do, I could bring together the gay history and and the travel industry. And so I did. Um, I put together Oscar Wilde tours and started doing tours in Europe. It's uh, it's actually not, not the way I usually tell it. The tours in Europe were first. Um, but then um, it occurred to friends of mine uh, that I could be doing day tours in the museums. Oh, no. Well, they just said you should do some tours in New York. And I said, well, I, I immediately thought, oh, I should do a tour at the Met and um, put together the tour of the Met, which I think is probably the best known thing I do, really. It's the, it used to be called the Gay Secrets of the Metropolitan, which I'm sorry is a better name than LGBTQ Secrets of the Metropolitan. <laughs> but um, it and is not very... only penises, just for everyone who reads the no, game, that's that's a different review article. That's different. That's a, that's a different tour. That tour was invented by NPR. Oh. Kurt Anderson wanted to interview me about penises at the Met. And he did. It was like, it was a great interview, actually. And he, um, they called it Unhung Heroes of the Metropolitan. I love it. Wow, they actually went there. I'm surprised. That was on NPR. Yeah, exactly. And one day I was just giving a tour and there were some women on it. And they said, why don't you turn that into a tour? Mm. So that's how the penises became a tour of the Met. It was not, not my idea. At all. It's a very good idea. But it's about penises and breasts because they're the two body parts that vary culture to culture the most. 
um, <laughs> the representation of penises and breasts is highly influenced by culture, whereas the representation of female genitalia is actually pretty universal, mm. which is to say they're like Barbie. <laughs> it's like a space between your legs. That's the genitalia of women in art, except in Courbet. I mean, it was obviously like a rebel. But um, so, yeah, that's this whole business started and all kinds of cool things have come out of it, including I'm right now planning my first LGBTQ history tour of India. Oh, wow. When is that supposed to launch, Andrew? Uh, February. Okay. And you do this, it seems like it's a roster that happens every year. Is that true? Like, do you do it every year or it's every few years? No, no, it's every year, but I'm actually going to put Italy and Greece to bed for a little while and do other things because I have interesting people to work with in India and Japan. Yeah. And those are going to take enough time and effort that I don't think I can. Oh, change. no, I better get my Italy and Greece in then because I'm like, I have to go on a tour with Andrew in Greece because I've never oh. been to Greece. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great. It's this this it's nice to connect. So what we're trying to do two things. One is we're trying to make a TV show out of them. And the other thing is we're trying to put some of the tours on an app. Mm. So that okay. you could do them, you know, when, when, so, so many people always say to me, oh, I'm going to be in uh, Italy in September. Do you have any tours? They <laughs> say, no, guys, there's just one of me. <laughs> so yes. we have a tour once a year when I'm in Italy. You you cannot have a tour when you want one. It's just not the way it works. Well, but if they were on app, yeah. or even if you had a podcast, you could actually lead people on a podcast through each destination. Well, that's a great idea. Well, I'll tell you a sad story. Stephen Fry and I proposed uh, an LGBT history podcast to um, Audible during mm -hmm. COVID and they turned us down. Can you imagine turning Stephen Fry down? No, I can't. No, not I not can't. Stephen I'm, Fry. No, I was, I have to say, when Stephen said, yes, that's a great idea, let's do it. I'll tell my agent. I thought, you know, I just assumed that was going to happen. It didn't occur to me that they would turn us down. But this shows you how channels, it the, like taking a chance, they see it as taking a chance on right. LGBTQ work. And niche. It's niche. Niche. Yes, it's yes. Niche. Yeah. Well, but something that I want everyone out there to know is you also do Zoom discuss like Zoom lectures, Zoom tours that everyone go to OscarWildTours.com. They can all, right? They can join. Yeah. Everyone I've, who's listening. I've, these days I've been doing, not in the summer, but the rest of the year, I've been doing like one free one a month um, that you can reach through Out Professionals and through the Gay and Lesbian Review. And I hope I put them on Oscar Wild Tours. And the very least they're on our Facebook group. Like I did one about um, LGBT um, resistance heroes in Nazi Europe. Um, which is really, yeah, it's a cool subject. A lot of material, actually. Um, and uh, one about what was called gender queer in art and history. Um, and just, yeah, the all have to keep coming up with subjects. So all kinds of stuff will happen. But um, I think in September, I'll be doing the German, that uh, uh, Nazi Europe one again, because I'm going to be in Berlin uh, with a tour group. Oscar Wilde's group, the day it's going to happen. And so they said, oh, well, you know, obviously you're in Berlin. You should do the Germany one again. So. Yeah. Well, I'm already like as a 
producer mind, I'm already thinking of the, your future podcast. Cause like, I can already see it that you have like episodes where like you bring your lectures, like you would condense them into an episode with a co-host, like someone in that field who, you know, and then like at the end you could have a 10 minute, like leading the, a person through a spot that like relates to that discussion. I definitely think there's a way that Andrew, you can get this out to the broad public. Everybody is always saying I should have a podcast and I never actually arrive at doing it. But if you want to, if you have an idea, tell me about it and maybe we can make it happen. Okay. We'll talk about that off air. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because I think it would be wonderful that people could game. actually go to these spaces. Like even mm, mm, I totally like, agree. Uh, you know, I'm in the New York area, but even if someone's at the Met, that they can listen to a discussion about penises and breasts or, you know, the ancient um, section, which is just stunning at the Met. One of It's always my favorite place at the Met. And they could actually like hear you discuss what they're going to encounter and they can actually walk and be immersed in your words. I think there's, there's definitely a way and there would be a way for you to... Uh, get a little monetization out of ads. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk. Um, we can talk about that. I'm always interested. We will. We will. But everyone definitely, this was just so wonderful, Andrew, to meet you. Thank you. Finally, Andrew. like I've been around you in uh, the universe and ether of the work you do, <laughs> but having to sit down with you has been a pleasure. So everyone, Oscar Wilde, how can they follow you, Andrew? I think you're definitely on social on Facebook. Media. Um, in fact, this last couple of weeks, my or maybe last week, my Facebook person, my social media person, has started. We're doing video shorts. Um, they're on Facebook Reels, uh, both under OscarWildTourist.com and my other tour company, ShadyLadiesTourist.com, which is a company about mistress, royal mistresses, and courtesans. Uh, it's a very fun uh, company. And in fact, our first ShadyLadiesTours.com reel was up like two days ago. It already has 16,000 views. So I think it can be said to be in its small way successful. And soon, I believe, we will be on TikTok. Yes, Although I saw I, news course, about do not that. have TikTok. <laughs> we'll probably yes. never see it in my life, but we will have it. Yes. Well, we have TikTok at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I know yeah. that... Once Oscar Wilde tours or Shady Ladies, however it's represented on TikTok, I'll share it out, repost. Please, we'll make please, sure please, you please. get traction on TikTok. So, Thank oh, you. and Andrew Lear is on Instagram too. Um, yes, you are. I know. <laughs> That's possible. Yes, yes, yes. So whoever is doing your social media has given you good exposure. Oh, okay. um, but thank you, Andrew. This has been wonderful and you know, I think everyone here has run the gamut of all different conversations. So there's something for everyone in this discussion. But yes, thank you. Cool. I all right. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. And thanks to the audience out there. And I will see you all next week in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Bye. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon 
membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.